Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, any place. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time, we talked about the first modern Olympic Games and what a damn mess they were as sporting competition went international. Today, we'll be talking about the ethical debate that naturally follows any Olympic Games, professionalism versus amateurism in the world of sports. To take it a step further, we'll be having this discussion through the lens of one of the greatest American athletes of all time, Jim Thorpe. If you're not familiar with Jim Thorpe, he was an American Indian who seemingly was the best at every sport around the turn of the century and was the first major athlete caught in the crossfires of a debate that still rages on today. But before I over-tease this and get ahead of myself, I've saved all the good stuff for Matt. Here he is. The story of Jim Thorpe hits on many of the important themes in American sport history and really just American history more generally. So what I want to do today is tell you his story and you know, give you his athletic biography. But I also want to place Jim Thorpe in the context of some of the dominant ideas about sports at this time and give you a sense of what he was up against. Jim Thorpe found himself smack dab in the middle of an argument or a, or a disagreement about the purpose of sport. He found himself right in the middle of an argument in the United States about what a real athlete looked like, how a real athlete acted. And this is an argument that was largely about amateurism. So though we are going to eventually get to Jim Thorpe, let's begin somewhere else. Let's begin in the elite athletic clubs and the country clubs that were popping up all across the United States at the turn of the 20th century. You might remember a couple of lectures ago, I was talking about Luther Gulick and Stanley Hall and James Naismith, men who were interested in using sports to teach American values to immigrant children, urban young people. They were interested in using sports to foster togetherness. 
Well, at the very same time this was happening, so-called upper-class Americans, wealthy Americans, they were using sports to do something the opposite. They were using sports to distance and distinguish themselves from the so-called common people. And let me put this another way. At the exact same time that sports were becoming more democratic, and by that I mean that more and more Americans had access to sports, wealthier Americans reacted to this democratization of sports by separating themselves from this suddenly more inclusive sports world. During the last few decades of the 19th century, wealthy Americans banded together in a variety of new, exclusive sports clubs and organizations. It began in 1866, the year after the end of the Civil War, with the founding of the New York Athletic Club. The New York Athletic Club was created by wealthy men who wanted a private space where they could engage in athletics, like, like rowing and fencing and running, but engage in these events only against men of their same social class. And that's the key phrase, their same social class. They did not want to compete against men they considered their social inferiors. A little more to my point today. They did not want to compete against men who they did not think understood the true value of sport. And I'll say more about that true value in just a second. By the mid-1870s, every American city of size had a private athletic club for the local rich, from Boston to New Orleans, you know, from Chicago to San Francisco. And these were very exclusive spaces where well-to-do men could not only separate themselves from women, which we talked about in our college football lecture, but to our point today, they could separate themselves from working class men, men beneath their station. A similar sporting institution was the country club. Country club is a literal term. It was a leisure space created to mimic the grand English country home, the vast English country estate. It was created as a space where wealthy Americans from the cities, they could gather and emulate the ways of the wealthy English aristocrat living a life of leisure out in the countryside. It was a suburban exclusive space where wealthy Americans could gather behind guarded entrances to dine and socialize and dance and to play games and sports with people just like them. One of the oldest and most influential American country clubs was simply known as The Country Club. It was in Brookline, Massachusetts. It was founded in 1882 and it soon became the center of golf in the United States. And the country club at Brookline, it was outside of Boston, and it was a space where Bostonians who were white and wealthy and Christian, in other words, not Jewish, they congregated and played sports among their own kind. There's an early written history of the Brookline Country Club that put it like this. Everybody was either in or out, and those who were in were proud of the fact and guarded its boundaries jealously. They played with each other, not with others. They competed with each other, not with others. Above all, they married each other only, and so their children carried on the good tradition. So this is sport and leisure as class segregation. This is, to remind you of a term from an earlier lecture, this is sport as conspicuous display. 
Now, let's shift gears just a bit and explore an idea about sports, a way of thinking about sports that was nurtured in these exclusive athletic clubs and these country clubs. This is the idea of amateurism. And this is one of the most important ideas in American sport history. I told you last time that one of the first major decisions made by Baron Coubertin and the International Olympic Committee was that Olympic athletes were to participate as representatives of nations. Well, another critical decision of theirs was their absolute insistence that all Olympians had to be amateurs. Now, remember, Coubertin was enamored with the English model of sport. And at the end of the 19th century, the leaders of the English sports world, they were committed to the idea of amateurism. And this was an idea that was rapidly gaining sway among upper-class American sportsmen as well. And they explained their commitment to amateurism like this. Sports are played for the competition. They are played to learn the valuable lessons of courage and, and teamwork. Sports teach you to win with grace and deal nobly with defeat. But sports are never to be used to make money. In fact, these sports leaders believe that once money enters the picture, the endeavor ceases to be sport at all. It, it becomes labor. No, they said, you compete for the love of the game. And that's where the word amateur comes from. It derives from the Latin root to love, like amore or, or amorous. And so an amateur is someone who does something for the love of it, not to be paid for it. Now, I like to call these promoters of amateurism apostles, the apostles of amateurism, because to them, there was an almost religious-like dedication and zeal to their belief in amateurism. Now, why really were they so committed to the idea of amateurism? Well, let me first suggest the sincerity of some of these guys. I think that some of these apostles of amateurism genuinely believed that amateurism was the best and really the only way. They genuinely believed that the purpose of sport was to build mind, body, and soul, and they believed that money corrupted the whole endeavor. And maybe there is something to that idea. It's certainly an argument that we've been having in the United States about whether or not college athletes should be able to make money. However, here is the dirty but truthful secret about this emphasis on amateurism. The call for amateurism also arose out of a desire to exclude the working class from the highest levels of athletic competition. This is such an important idea. I want to make sure I say enough here. So let me go back to England in the mid-19th century and say something. In England in the middle of the 19th century, there actually was no emphasis on amateurism. There was no divide between those who competed in athletic contests for money and those who did not. Mid-19th century English sporting culture was made up of a, a motley mix of athletic competitors from all classes. And, and there were sports-loving spectators, and there were gamblers, and there were entrepreneurs. They all competed and watched and wagered on boxing matches and rowing contests uh, horse racing, walking competitions, and so on. But then the so-called self-appointed better classes of England, they came to resent two things. First, they resented the challenge that working class athletes posed. You know, after all, what might they think of us 
their social superiors if they can beat us in a foot race or a rowing contest. And second, they came to resent and find a bit distasteful the culture of hard drinking and, and lusty rooting and loud braggadocio that the working class brought with them to these contests. They just found it unseemly and undignified. And so in response to this, middle and upper class sportsmen in England, they developed and they promoted this amateur philosophy which served to exclude the working class from most sports. Who has time and the means to engage in sport if you can't make money playing that sport? Only the upper-class athlete. There's an American sport historian named Alan Gutman. He's the godfather of American sport history in my mind. And he goes so far as to call this upper-class emphasis on amateurism class warfare. It is a rule concocted by the upper class to exclude the working class from sports. Now, the United States had their own apostles of amateurism, the men who were creating and joining those elite athletic clubs, for example. And these were upper class sportsmen who had a vision of the ideal American athlete. And I suppose by extension, a vision of the ideal American. And this ideal American was white, Christian, and upper class, you know, in their mind, the cream of the crop. And the most important of the apostles of amateurism in the United States was James Sullivan. And you know about him. He was the guy who ran the 1904 St. Louis Olympics, the guy who believed in the superiority of the white American athlete, the, the guy who came up with anthropology days. Sullivan was a big believer in amateurism, one of the biggest. In fact, to this day, the award given out to the nation's top amateur athlete is called the Sullivan Award. It's named after James Sullivan. And Sullivan was a New York businessman and a lover of sport, but he was someone who had little tolerance for the working class athletes who wanted to use sport as a way to make wealth. So in order to protect sport, and that's how he thought of it, protect sport from the stain of money, Sullivan created the Amateur Athletic Union, the AAU, in 1888. And the AAU, it began as a union of elite athletic clubs, like the New York Athletic Club, which I told you about. And the AAU quickly became the guardian of amateurism in American sports. And the AAU was an umbrella organization that ran most sports. Other than horse racing and baseball and boxing, those were already professionalized. And other than college football, which would remain under the control of the college presidents, the AAU was the organization that would set the rules for the rest of American sports for the next 100 years. And the number one rule of the Amateur Athletic Union was no pay. That's the first word of the organization, amateur. One of the things that's so interesting about these apostles of amateurism is how they were able to convince people that amateurism had a long historical basis, that the amateur was the norm. To this day, there are those who will swear to you that amateurism came first and professionalism came later. They say that professionalism is a modern corruption of the traditional amateur ethos. But that's not true. In fact, that is a completely backward way of thinking about it. You can go back to ancient Greece and the early Olympic Games, to the chariot racers of ancient Rome, 
to the early baseball players and prize fighters and men who raced boats or horses in England and the United States. Money was always part of the equation. People always made money through sports. But by using propaganda, these apostles of amateurism, these upper-class British and American men, they rewrote history and argued that sports had always been amateur. They said that professionalism was a modern corruption. This idea of amateurism did not immediately win the day and become the dominant idea in American sports. But what helped the amateur ideal win out was the Olympic Games. The Olympic Games were so popular and the Olympic Games insisted on amateurism that amateurism became the tradition in the United States. And amateurism is going to be the rule at the Olympic Games all the way until 1992. And we will discuss the end of amateurism when we get to that era. After the break, the greatest athlete in the world gets caught in the middle of the amateurism debate. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The American athlete who found himself in the crosshairs of the debate about amateurism was Jim Thorpe, maybe the greatest all-around athlete in American history. Jim Thorpe was an American Indian from Oklahoma, and when he was 16 years old, he was sent to the Carlisle Indian School, which was a boarding school in Pennsylvania for American Indians. And Carlisle was a school run by white philanthropists. It was a place where Indian children were taught the ways of white culture. The idea was that here at Carlisle, the so-called wild Indian would become civilized. He would be taught English, mathematics, so-called proper manners. And he would be taught sports like football and baseball. I mean, after all, if you want to turn a quote-unquote wild Indian into a real American, teach him to play sports like football and baseball. Well, when it came to sports, it turns out Jim Thorpe could do it all, competing in sports for the Carlisle Indians. That was their nickname. He was a collegiate All-American in track and field. 
Jim Thorpe was an All-American in baseball, in lacrosse. For crying out loud, in 1912, Jim Thorpe was the intercollegiate champion in ballroom dancing. And Jim Thorpe was a great football player. Thorpe played football at Carlisle for the legendary coach, Glenn Pop Warner. If you're familiar with Pop Warner football, that's who it's named after. And at first, Pop Warner did not want Jim Thorpe to play football. Pop Warner was also the Carlisle track coach, and he did not want his star athlete to get hurt playing the brutal game of football. But Thorpe was just too good to keep off of the gridiron. In 1911, playing football for Pop Warner, Jim Thorpe led Carlisle to a shocking upset over powerful Harvard. And this is when Americans started to become very interested in this athlete, an athlete that sports writers referred to simply as the Indian. At the 1912 Summer Olympics in Stockholm, this American Indian became an international sports star when he demolished the competition in both the pentathlon and the decathlon. These are five event and 10 event track and field competitions. And Jim Thorpe dominated these events like no man ever had before. At the medal ceremony, King Gustav of Sweden presented Jim Thorpe with his medals. And he told Thorpe, sir, you are the greatest athlete in the world. Jim Thorpe said, thanks, King. Or at least that's the story. One of Thorpe's biographers believes this story is apocryphal. She says that such a comment would have been totally out of character for Thorpe, a man who was highly uncomfortable in public ceremonies and hated to stand out. And she points out that this anecdote never appeared in print until 1948, 36 years after Thorpe's appearance in the Olympics. So many of the great American sport anecdotes, it turns out, come from the minds of cunning writers. Anyway, back to Thorpe. So after the Olympics, Jim Thorpe returns to the United States, a national hero, and he's welcomed in New York City with a ticker tape parade. Jim Thorpe had represented the United States on the athletic field of battle, and he had succeeded magnificently. And Jim Thorpe heralded a new type of American athlete. He was not like the young men who had represented the United States at the first Olympic Games in 1896. These were upper class white men of privilege, you know, young men who attended Harvard and Yale and Princeton or those elite athletic clubs. This 1912 team was way more diverse, more representative of the American population. And some Americans, well, they celebrated this athletic diversity. The head of the American Olympic Committee in 1912 was Colonel R.M. Thompson, and he said, this is democracy in action. This is the beauty of the American experiment. Yes, you have men of English and Scottish and Irish and German extraction winning medals for the United States. But now we have Hawaiians and black Americans and American Indians joining them on the team and winning medals as well. Were they not Americans, too? All of these different people in the United States growing up in the American system with our love of competitive sports, and this is the fruit of those labors. It was interesting. In England, there were those who questioned the composition of the American team. They questioned the Americans using Black athletes and Native Americans for athletic glory. While at the same time, they pointed out, the American government was hurting some of these people under reservations. You know, some of these people could not vote down in the South because of Jim Crow laws. 
In Britain, they looked at Team USA and they saw hypocrisy. And to be clear, this critique did not come from a commitment to diversity. Back in London, there were those who sniffed and scoffed and said, this would be like us putting Kenyans and Jamaicans on our team, people from territories we have conquered. And they were not interested in doing that in Britain. So Jim Thorpe helped redefine the idea of what an American athlete was, what he looked like. And then Jim Thorpe enhanced his reputation even more by leading Carlisle to the national championship in college football that fall. It was a season that included a shocking upset over Army. And Army was a football powerhouse. It was a team led by a tough linebacker and running back named Dwight David Eisenhower. And Carlisle's victory over Army, it was as symbolic as it gets in sports. It had been the fathers of the Army players who had routed the fathers of the Carlisle Indians and conquered the American West for white America. So here we have the football field serving as a site for symbolic revenge. So in 1912, Jim Thorpe was on top of the sports world. But Jim Thorpe was a problematic figure for American sports leaders, for guys like James Sullivan. Sullivan had a vision of the ideal American athlete, and that was a vision of a white, middle or upper class Protestant man. So when the first American athlete to attract massive international attention was an American Indian, well, let's just say that Jim Thorpe was not the poster boy for American sports that he envisioned. But what could he do? Well, a few months after leading Carlisle to their remarkable football victory over Army, there was an accusation against Jim Thorpe and then evidence to support that accusation. It was discovered that a couple of years earlier, in, in 1909 and 1910, Jim Thorpe had been paid to play summer baseball for a minor league team in North Carolina. He had earned $25 a week doing this. The Amateur Athletic Union and the American Olympic Committee, they moved with incredible speed. They said Jim Thorpe has broken the sacred vow of amateurism, and they ordered that he return his gold medals and that his name be removed from the Olympic record book. Jim Thorpe was disgraced and he was punished. Now, Thorpe's defenders said that this was racism. They said a prominent white athlete never would have been punished so severely. And they pointed out accurately that many amateur athletes like Ivy League football players, they made money during summer playing some form of professional baseball. The only difference being that these Ivy Leaguers knew to give a false name when they did this. Look, was, was Jim Thorpe guilty of breaking the rule of amateurism? Yes, he was. But do I think he was punished as swiftly and severely as he was because he was an American Indian? I strongly suspect so. One of the more powerful members of the American Olympic Committee was a magazine publisher named Casper Whitney. And Casper Whitney once called American athletes of color vermin. That was the word he used, vermin. So like rats or cockroaches. He believed it was beneath the dignity of white athletes to even appear on the field of play with athletes of color. And knowing the view of men like Casper Whitney and James Sullivan, I think it's logical to say that Thorpe's punishment had something to do with race. So Jim Thorpe, 
has the infamous distinction of being the first athlete to be punished for violating the IOC's rule of amateurism and being stripped of his medals. Jim Thorpe went on to have a fairly successful professional sports career. He played Major League Baseball for five years. In the 1920s, he played in a new professional football league, the NFL. Perhaps you've heard of it. In fact, because he was so famous and this new league desperately needed publicity, Jim Thorpe was the first president of the NFL, essentially its first commissioner. Later, he was the main feature of a traveling basketball team called the World Famous Indians. I'll say it again. Jim Thorpe could do it all. The last few decades for Jim Thorpe were not glamorous. He worked as a construction worker. He was a doorman. He was a security guard and a ditch digger. He ran out of money sometime in the early 1950s. And when hospitalized for lip cancer in 1950, Jim Thorpe was admitted as a charity case. Jim Thorpe died of heart failure in 1953, and he never got his Olympic medals back. Though in a partial kiss and make up, in 1983, the International Olympic Committee, they gave duplicate medals to his family, and they put Jim Thorpe's name back in the record books. Though in kind of a strange move, they still have not declared him the undisputed winner of his two events. He is a co-gold medalist. That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, George Herman Ruth Jr. You may know him as The Babe. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.